0: This talk was given at the Insight Meditation Society on May 30th, 1983. The speaker is Joseph Goldstein. The topic, The Way of the Tao. It's said that at one time, the Buddha was addressing an assemblage of monks and nuns and laypeople from the top of Vulture Peak, which is a small mountain in northern India. There were several thousand people sitting around him. And what he did in delivering this sermon or discourse, he took a flower and he held up the flower. And one monk name was Maha Kasapa, smiled. The Buddha put down the flower. That was the discourse. What would you make of such a discourse? If someone came in and held up a flower, would you smile? Actually, in the holding up of the flower, If we know how to perceive correctly, the whole of the dharma is revealed. The whole dharma can be understood in seeing the flower. We can begin to understand how different forms conditioned by different causes are endlessly transforming. It's true of the nature of all conditioned existence, all forms. Forms conditioned by causes are endlessly changing. We can see that in the flower. Certain causes condition a certain form, transforming continuously. When we see the flower and we understand the flower, we can understand the nature of beauty. And creativity and the nature of decay and death. When we understand the flower, we can understand attachment and suffering. When we try to hold on to beauty, when we try to hold on to anything that is in the process of endless transformation, we create conditions for suffering. In seeing the flower, in understanding the flower, we can understand the emptiness of phenomena. That is, what is flower? What is the flower? Is it the petals? Is it the stem? Is it the color? Is it the odor? Actually, flower is an empty phenomena, just like self. So we can understand the emptiness of phenomena. We can also understand what in Zen practice, in that tradition, is called the suchness of things. That is, things just as they are. And looking at the flower, we can appreciate both the emptiness, emptiness of essential essence, and also on the other side, the suchness of it. Flower just as it is. The suchness of things means the quality of the experience before interpretation, before comment, before evaluation, before judgment, things just as they are. How can you describe to somebody a color? How can you describe the essence of a taste? How can you describe the sound? When we're with the suchness of the experience, there's no inside, there's no outside, there's no bell, there's no ear. All of that comes afterwards. There's just In every moment of experience the Buddha is holding up the flower. In every thought, in every sensation, in every sound, in every odor, in every taste, in every emotion, in every image, it's no different than the Buddha holding up the flower. The whole of the Dharma is revealed to us in each moment. We can see the beauty and the decay attachment and suffering, emptiness and suchness, it said that the whole of the 84,000 suttas or discourses of the teachings are contained in that flower. It's no wonder that Maha Kasapha smiled. <laughs> A brilliant discourse. Settling back into the moment, settling back into the experience, into the suchness of each moment, is practicing and learning the art of listening. Listening to experience, listening to sensations, to thoughts, to feelings, to sounds. It's the art of embracing objects of becoming one with each moment, in our experience. There's a story of somebody in the Buddhist time, who had been teaching many students, but who knew that he himself had not really penetrated to the, to the essence, to that zero center. He heard of the Buddha, and he determined to go off and leave his students, go off and and get the teachings. So he traveled all the way across India. At that time it took many months to make the journey. Finally he came to the place, the village, where the Buddha was staying. And he found out that the Buddha was in the village collecting alms food. And the other monks and nuns and whoever was there said, please and when he comes back he'll be glad to teach you." This, this man was very impatient. He said, no, I must get the teachings now, and he went off into the village. He met the Buddha in the street, just carrying the alms bowl full of food, and he said, sir, please teach me. Again, the Buddha said, wait and we'll go back and have food and I'll be glad to teach you. This man was totally insistent. He asked a second time, a third time, he said, you may die, I may die, before I get the teachings, please teach me now. Do any of you have that kind of... <laughs> ...earnestness? It's a model of the possibility of urgency. What to do? The Buddha is standing there with his alms bowl full of food. He was asked the proverbial three times, he agreed. But how to give the teachings just succinctly? There was no flower around. (laughs) (laughs) And so the Buddha gave him this one short teaching, which sums up in the simplest possible way the most profound aspects of our practice. What he said was, in the scene, that is seen with the eyes, there is just what is seen. And in the heard, there is just what is heard. And in the sensed, that is smelled and tasted and, and sensed in the body, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. In each moment, there is just what there is. In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. Nothing extra. Everything being exactly what it is, the suchness of each moment. This old man, who was named Bahiya, heard these teachings, and as in all great Buddhist stories, he got enlightened. But There was a PS to it, and that is just after hearing the teachings, and really penetrating, the whole dharma is in that, is in that one stanza heard the teachings, his mind awakened, opened, and just after that it said that a wild cow came up and gored him and he died. (laughs) Uh, He must have had some premonition but he had made it. He got it. Do you see how simple the practices It's coming to an appreciation of the total simplicity of being. It's not complicated and it's not complex. The problem is that our minds have become complicated and our minds have become complex. And what we're practicing is coming back to that level of total simplicity in each moment. The simplicity of being with each moment's experience Exactly as it is. In the scene, just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the sense, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. Moment after moment. The settling back into the moment. Being with each experience as it presents itself, becoming one with it leads to a quality or an understanding of balance and of rhythm, the balance of mind that's not jumping into each moment's experience with attachment, with, a, with aversion, with our likes, with our dislikes, with complexity of interpretation. There's a tremendous balance of mind, which comes about when we settle back in a soft and allowing way to be with our experience as it unfolds. And in that balance, we begin to become, become one with the rhythm of life, the rhythm of experience. There's an old Chinese saying, It comes from some poem. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. All of nature is a process unfolding, and we are part of that, we're not different. Is a natural unfolding of the Dharma, of our lives, of experience. If we can settle back, sitting quietly doing nothing, what in the Chinese are called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. A nice image for the totality of life's experience. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows arise and pass in their own time, in their own rhythm, we become one with that flaw. Sometimes people hear sitting quietly doing nothing and they misinterpret it, and they think it means sitting quietly doing nothing. <laughs> the difference between the two has to do with understanding the difference between non-action and inaction. Non-action is that openness and balance of mind in which everything is happening. Everything is arising and passing. Non-action allows for the fullness of experience. Inaction is a withdrawal from experience. They're very different states. Put another way, it's the difference between responding to situations and reacting to situations. When we react, and the mind is reactive, we're jumping into the experience with our judgments, with our likes, with our dislikes, with attachment, with aversion. And we simply play out Conditioned Habit, Habitual Responses. When we're open to the moment, non-action instead of inaction, then the moment arises, and out of that openness comes the natural response. Not a reaction of mind, based on our judgments. Judgment in this sense doesn't mean discriminating awareness, because there can be tremendous wisdom in discriminating awareness. Judgment in this sense means the quality of reactiveness, of attachment, of aversion, of holding on, of pushing away. That's very different than a situation arising and out of the situation, out of the openness to it, a natural response emerging. I'll tell you a story which illustrates the possibility of this. A friend of ours was practicing with us in India. She had gone to Calcutta to be with one teacher and was returning to Bodhgaya, which is a small village where the Buddha was enlightened, and which has now become a place of practice and pilgrimage. We had been studying in Bodhgaya. She was in Calcutta going to the train station in a rickshaw with a friend to take the train back to Bodgaya. They were going through some dark streets on the way to the train station and in some dark alley this big man kind of jumped out of the alley and started pulling her out of the rickshaw. It was very frightening. It was a really terrifying situation. The friend she was with managed to pushed this guy away, and the rickshaw got out of that street. She got to the train, she came to Bodhgaya. She's telling Munindraji the story, and he's very interested in everything. and He was very interested in this and exactly what happened. So she goes through all the details of the story, and he listens. When she finishes, he says, Oh dear, with all the loving-kindness in your heart, You should have taken your umbrella and hit that man over the head. (laughs) Non-action is not inaction. Sometimes the response to situations is to take the umbrella and hit that person over the head, with all the loving kindness in your heart. (laughs) Mostly we forget that part of it. We forget that sense of balance. So when you take your umbrella, watch the place out of which it comes. Is it with anger? Is it with violence? Is it with fear? Is it the appropriate loving response? The power of the Buddhist teachings as perhaps you've gotten a taste of during these last nine days, has to do with the discipline of simplicity. It's coming back to simplicity from the mind of complexity. If you're still confused about how to do the practice, there's a one-line teaching which you can take with you, which explains the whole practice again. If you sit and know that you're sitting, the whole Dharma will be revealed. Sit, and know you're sitting. Stand and know you're standing. Walk and know you're walking. The discipline of simplicity. Now, what could be more simple than lifting, moving, placing? Sort of like a baby. Coming back just to the barest components of experience. And against the backdrop of that simplicity, the whole mind is revealed. You can see all the projections into past, into future. You can see all the judgments, all the clinging, all the condemning, against the reference point of what's simple. There's tremendous power, and it's not only in the context of a retreat. Really what we're practicing here is a way of living. And it's only if in some way we're able to carry this quality of awareness, the awareness of simplicity from the retreat setting into our lives outside of the retreat. That's what gives the practice meaning. In a very fundamental way it's no different when you leave here. There's still the scene and the heard and the sensed and the thought. Same phenomena going on. Coming back to the simplicity of each moment gives tremendous power. Gives tremendous power and also leads to a wonderful sense of spaciousness, spaciousness in our minds, spaciousness in our lives. There's a Taoist phrase from the old Chinese tradition, free and easy wandering. And there's something about those words that suggest very exactly the quality of mind, the ease of mind, the spaciousness of mind, free and easy wandering. That is, with each moment's experience, as it comes, as it goes, without a grasping, without a holding, without a resisting. Suzuki Roshi, in his book Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, He talked of how the best way to control a cow is to give it a big pasture. Now, if you confine a cow in a small pen, it's going to get tight and nervous and tense. You give it a big pasture and it roams freely. It's content. It's easy. We don't give ourselves very big pastures. We confine ourselves in the mold of self, of self-images. We create this tightness. Coming back to the discipline of simplicity is to create a field of spaciousness. Give the mind a free pasture. It's as if we're riding a horse. You can either be reining the horse in, Or you can give the horse free rein, let it go. Your job being to stay on the horse. Let the mind go. The next sitting, when you come back after the walking, give the mind free rein. Let it go wherever it wants to go. And it will only go one of six places. (laughs) It'll either go to a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, or a mind object. So it's not complicated. Let the mind go wherever it wants to go, stay in the saddle. This will just be aware of where it goes. You'll get a sense of the rhythm, of the ease, of the spaciousness, of the simplicity of it. We begin to work with a sense of There's a sense of joy, there's a sense of lightness, there's a sense of appreciation for each moment's gift. One of the verses from the Tao Te Ching, teachings of Lao Tzu, one of the verses says that when a wise person hears the Tao or the Dharma, they practice diligently. And when an average person hears the Tao, they waver. And when a foolish person hears the Tao, they laugh. And if such a one did not laugh, the Tao would not be the Tao. There's this sense of appreciation of all aspects of ourselves, all aspects of everybody else. There was one time in my practice when I was very enthusiastic, had a lot of energy and was very committed. And I thought that anybody who was not doing intensive practice all the time was wasting their lives. Wonderful mind state. (laughs) Tight, judgmental, closed. We don't have to get into that kind of contraction. There's the appreciation of the whole range, not so much judgment, not so much evaluation, clear seeing, the, the discipline of simplicity, of coming back to the moment and seeing what's there. There's a little poem by Suzaki Roshi, describing the sense of play, the sense of ease, the sense of spaciousness. He wrote, as a butterfly lost in the flowers and as a child fondling mother's breast As a bird settled on the tree, 67 years of this world I have played with God. As a butterfly lost in flowers, as a child fondling mother's breast, as a bird settled on the tree, 67 years of this world I have played with God." That is the oneness that's created in each moment of being present. Becoming one with the butterfly, one with the child, one with the bird, one with the tree. This oneness happens when we're aware, when we're present to every sight, to every sound, to every flower, to every experience. sounds so simple. Dance with the Dharma. Settle back into the moment, be simple and easy. Why aren't we smiling like Mahakasapa smiled? <laughs> what seems to make it so difficult for us? Something that is so essentially simple. There seem to be, for most of us, some array of obstacles between where we are and the ease of the present moment. These obstacles have to do largely with expectations and resistance. We have a lot of expectations about how we want our experience to be. Or we have resistance to what it actually is. And as long as these expectations are present, and resistance is present, it's impossible to drop back into the ease of the moment. We create barriers for ourselves through the expectations, through the wanting it to be different. As long as we're lost in the wanting it to be different, we can't be present fully. Or if we're resisting, not liking it, And we do this on all levels. We do it on the mind-moment level. That is, we can be with experience with a slight anticipation of what's coming next. That's expectation, even if we're watching the in-breath, anticipating the out-breath is not being present. We do this with the body. You know, we want our bodies, the experience that we have, to be different. If only this pain would go away. Or if only I could sit up straight, or whatever it is. Not being with our experience as it is, resistance to what's happening, expectation of something else. We do it interpersonally, we do it in our relationships with people. In how many relationships do we have? Which, is, which are free of expectation and resistance. But the expectation and resistance, these things are born out of a sense of self, a sense of self-image. There's another story from the Chinese of a prince, a Chinese prince, going out on a monkey hunt. and They went out to the forest, he and all his attendants. And all the monkeys fled, except for one monkey. And it wasn't the hundredth monkey. It was another monkey. (laughs) (laughs) And this monkey just stood very proudly on the end of this branch on the tree. And the prince took his bow and arrow and shot it at the monkey. And the monkey very cleverly grabbed the arrow. In midair. and of stood there. <laughs> what happened? The prince ordered all of his attendants to take their bows and arrows and shoot at once. And the monkey was killed. When we take a stand, you know, in our lives, look at me. Look at what I can do. Look at whatever. When the stand is taken based on this sense of self of I, of ego, that very stance sets up the polarity of opposition. When we can go through the world empty of self, empty of I, there's so much harmony and so much ease. So it's important to look at the kinds of self-images that are created. There's another story of a an old governor of Kyoto going to visit a famous Zen master. And he goes to the temple and he gives the card to the attendant. And the attendant brings the card into the Zen master. The master reads it, and says, Kitagachi, governor of Kyoto. And the Zen Master says, Throw the fellow out. Big man, it's like you know President Reagan coming, throw the fellow out." So the attendant goes back, says, sorry, the Zen master won't see you. The governor was wise. He crossed out governor of Kyoto. He said, here, give the, bring the card back. The attendant goes, brings the card back. The Zen master sees it. Oh, Kitagaji, I want to see that fellow. When we present ourselves, Governor of Kyoto, this or that, what we're presenting is an image. It's a role. We're not offering ourselves our being. When we can let go of that and simply be who we are in the moment, then there's the possibility for contact, for communication. So to look at the kind of worldly self-images that we buy into the worldly roles. There are also spiritual self-images and spiritual roles that we take on, especially as we become more committed to the practice. Somebody in the California course recently wanted to know what the significance of the shawl was. It's to keep warm. It's very easy to take on the trappings and to get caught by the trappings or a certain stance. I'm so humble. (laughs) It's a posturing. Practice has nothing to do with taking on a new set of images or a new set of roles to let go of all of them, whether they're worldly ones or spiritual ones. It's very easy. When I first started my practice, I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, after I had finished studying philosophy. and I used to go to these Dharma discussion groups at one of the famous temples. It was my first introduction to Buddha Dharma, and it was tremendously exciting and I asked thousands of questions. People stopped coming to these meetings because I came. I was one of those. (laughs) And sometimes I think my karma comes back (laughs) in certain situations. But I can appreciate the energy behind it. Just this endless questioning about about everything. Finally, out of desperation, one of the monks said, Why don't you try meditating? (laughs) 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 Hoping I'd quiet down a little bit. And at that time, it was totally, totally new. It was certainly new to me, and none of my friends knew anything about it. It was like this exotic thing to do in the East. I was in Thailand, in Bangkok. And so he explains just a simple breathing technique, and he tells me how to sit. And I go out and I get all this paraphernalia you know, to sit correctly. And I set my alarm clock for five minutes. <laughs> I, <just laughs> I didn't want to sit too much. <laughs> but very quickly, I, mean, I just—I was so totally fascinated by the possibility. You know, just looking inward, it was like this whole new dimension, the possibility of a new dimension, opening up. Speaking in terms of spiritual self-images, it got so bad for a while that at one point I was inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. (laughs) They didn't come back too often. (laughs) But actually, you see, I'm still doing it. (laughs) Now it's just for the company. (laughs) One of the mm, greatest helps or lessons in letting go of spiritual self-images comes from um, the opportunity, one of the ways of letting go, beside the obvious one of seeing them clearly, is the opportunity to be with different teachers. Because then you see that the Dharma manifests in the widest range of personality and behavior we see very directly that there's no one way to be. In the time of my intensive study and in practice, I studied with three different teachers, one of whom was Munindraji. And for those of you who haven't met him, he's this little man in white, all dressed in white, who's very active, a tremendous amount of energy, is running around all over the place, has done the most extensive and thorough study of the texts has gone really deep in practice, very curious about everything, very busy, very involved. One time we were in a marketplace in Bodh He's a great shopper. He's very poor. He has no money, just, just what people give him. He has no, no business or anything like that. So he's very careful with his money. He was in the marketplace and he was buying some peanuts. He was going from one peanut vendor to another, kind of rattling them and smelling them and bargaining with the guys. And finally somebody said to Munindraji, what are you doing? You know, this is for five cents worth of peanuts. I thought, you know, great gurus are not supposed to have any preferences. And here you are driving these people crazy. And, Munindra turned to him and said, the path of the Dharma is to be simple, not a simpleton. (laughs) (laughs) And he has that kind of energy which engages the world, you know, full on. He has the kind of mind, when when he first visited America, we went into a post office, and he was interested to read all of the announcements, (laughs) Uh, do you know the announcements here in a post office? (laughs) And just this fascination with everything, that quality of aliveness and curiosity, it's amazing. You can also tire one out if you're not up to that level. (laughs) He was one of of the examples of the Dharma manifesting. Another teacher was Goenkaji some of you may have practiced with. He's a uh, very opposite to Meninga in many ways. He's a successful businessman, very comes from a very wealthy family, very sedate, very dignified, very powerful. And you just when he sits, you, you can feel the power you know, of, of his meta of his practice. Didn't do much study, doesn't have much of the theoretical background, but very much involved in the household life, married, in a family, manifesting the Dharma in that way. Another of our teachers was this woman, Deepama, who came a few years ago. Amazing, amazing woman in mind. She also, like the other teacher I mentioned, she was married at the age of 12, as was typical at that time in Indian culture went through tremendous amount of suffering. Her husband died, two of her three children died. Tremendous, tremendous pain in her life. When she came to the Dharma, her mind was so, so ripe and so ready to receive the teachings. And it's clear that her paramis, that is the power of her mind, had been developed over many lifetimes very quickly, she was one of the the shortest possible time, reached to deep levels of enlightenment, deep levels of samadhi, did all the concentration practices, powers of mind, and when you're with her, you feel this tremendously deep stillness and peace, combined with the most amazing quality of metta she lives in these small rooms in calcutta in what would in what in america would be considered slums and there it's just hmm, it's poor housing very dark and narrow and dirty and you go up to her rooms which are on the top floor and you walk in and it's it's like you enter an arena of light the power of her stillness and the power of her love is so amazing. And she gives it without any It's like the meta or the love in her, is the expression of her being. And so it touches every situation, every person that comes into the field of it. When she was leaving America, after her visit here, we took her to the airport. And just as we were leaving, she was blessing everybody that she passed. You know, she blessed the plane, and that's how she relates to the world. And just with that outpouring of love from the deepest, stillest, most silent place. So she was a tremendous inspiration as to the possibility of what we can do with our minds. To be with different people, and then with different teachers in America, begin to get a sense that there is not any one way to be. That our practice is going to enable us to be more ourselves. We're going to manifest the Dharma in our own way, through our own personalities. There's a tremendous ease in that, because then we don't have to strive or struggle to imitate or emulate or anything, except settling back into the unfolding of our own experience, doing it with awareness and sensitivity, and real caring attention. To close, I'd like to read one poem from Chuang Tzu, who was one of the disciples of Lao Tzu, who were great Taoist sages. What is meant by a true man or woman? True men and women of old were not afraid when they stood alone in their views. No great exploits, no plans. If they failed, no sorrow and no self-congratulation in success. The true men and women of old slept without dreams and woke without worries. Their food was plain and they breathed deep. The true men and women of old knew no lust for life, nor dread of death. They did not forget where from, nor ask where to, nor drive grimly forward, fighting their way through life. They took life as it came, gladly, and took death as it came, without care. They had no mind to fight the Tao, and they did not try by their own contriving to help the Tao along. These are the ones we call true men and women. Minds free, thoughts gone, brows clear, and faces serene. Were they cool? Only cool as autumn, were they hot, no hotter than spring, and all that came out of them came quiet, like the four seasons." All that came out of them came quiet, like the four seasons. This is our path of practice. The possibility of that harmony, and that understanding, and that simplicity. Do you have any questions? Well, could we say that the whole teaching boils down to one word, mindfulness? a plus (laughs) that's it They hear it from a lot of different sides, and a lot of different angles, and a lot of... But it all comes down to the simplicity of being present. Being present with awareness, with mindfulness, with attention. It seems so obvious that if we want to understand the nature of things, we have to be there to experience it fully. How else can we possibly understand? the nature of the mind, the nature of body, unless we pay careful attention. And the process is very subtle, and it's going very quickly. So we have to train our minds to be just there with that level of refinement. There's one line from a, a poem by Wordsworth, which always sticks in my mind with the relationship to practice. I forget which poem it comes from, but he says, Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. And you have this sense in your practice sometimes that we're always a little bit late or a little bit soon for each moment. You know, that actually to get just there, just in the moment, when it actually arises, takes a tremendous amount of attention and stillness, and the lateness and the soonness, the getting and spending, we lay waste the power. But as we become more attentive, more in focus, it's almost as if we live our lives out of focus, you know, a double image, because we're anticipating, or we're, we're resisting, or we're lost in thought. And as we get more and more in the moment, it's like the images become aligned until we're totally in focus, we're totally present and fluid and open and easy enough to be with the constant change that's happening. Not late, not soon, not getting, not spending, just present. And there's tremendous strength and power in that quality of mind. So sweet. (laughs) There's the flower sermon and the bird sermon.